0: again um, we uh, you know Lawrence Johnson or one of our elders sent out an email saying Pastor Jim was on vacation and he called me and he said Nancy do you want me to let anybody know that you're going to be filling in and I said well I don't know because nobody will be there the first Sunday he said well how, how do you think it would be better if there was 300 people the first Sunday and 40 the second or whether <laughs> we were just consistently low the whole time so I'm actually really glad to see you um <laughs> Also, some of you might be wondering how Pastor Jim's doing, and if you've been attending this church for a while, you'll uh, know this is quite significant. Uh, Pastor Jim sent me a picture of the castle from Monty Python's Holy Grail, so he's, he's basically not coming back. He's, he's going to stay there for a while. So Let me pray, and we'll get started on our message. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of this church family, for this community. We thank you that you allow us to come together corporately to worship you together as a body. And I pray for all of the hearts in this room, Lord. I pray that proud hearts would be humbled and that broken hearts would be mended. But for all of us, Lord, let your word have an impact upon us. Let your word accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And please bless us today, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the word of the Lord is coming to us today from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. I've been working through Hebrews for a while and uh, will continue to do so for a while, unless we do more uh, three-week sessions like we're doing now. Um, It's a deep book. It requires uh, a a lot of thought, a lot of prayer, both to read it, to receive it, and to teach it. There are so many great truths in here. I think Hebrews along with Romans is one of those books that just has so much depth to it, you can't just blast through it really quickly when you're trying to do your annual Bible read-through. We're in Hebrews 2, chapter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is God's word for God's people. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Now in our study through the book of Hebrews thus far, and I don't actually remember how many we've done, um, but we've had one major theme repeated and reiterated over and over again, and which will be repeated and reiterated again and again throughout the rest of the book, which is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. The author of the book of Hebrews wants this to be absolutely clear to us, with no room for doubt that Jesus Christ is greater and that Jesus Christ is better than any other religion, ideology, or world system that attempts to uh, compete for the attention and the loyalty of humanity. You say, what else would you turn to that you think would be greater than what you have in Christ, in other words? um, Hebrews 1 Now, this is a clear and bold declaration of the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, in the verses that follow this opening section, the author of the book of Hebrews expounded the superiority of Christ over the angels who delivered the law at Sinai, and he was showing the original readers and us that Christ in the covenant that Christ mediates is superior and that to return to the old covenant, as these original hearers were tempted to do, would be to return to something that was inferior, something that had passed and is now obsolete. The question was, why why return to the Mosaic covenant when God himself, in the flesh, has appeared and inaugurated a new covenant in his own blood? Why follow any other religion or ideology or philosophy when the king of kings and the lord of lords by whom and for whom all things were created has stepped upon the earth defeated death and is now seated at the right hand of the father the lord jesus christ is king the lord jesus christ is supreme now these truths that we've learned are, are wonderful and they're amazing and they should inspire us to worship and, and praise the Lord Jesus. That's what they were intended to do, in fact. But even as we do that, even as we acknowledge that what the Scripture says about King Jesus is true, there's probably in the back of most of our minds a, a little problem, a little flag that goes up. and Maybe this is a problem that uh, you don't want to voice out loud or even admit to yourself that you have because you think that it means you're doubting the truth of God's Word or maybe doubting who Jesus is, but the problem still sits there unresolved. And and what's the problem? It's a question, really. The question is, if Jesus is the reigning king of the universe, if he's upholding the universe by the word of his power, then why doesn't it seem like it? And this might not be the question that you have, but it's the question that many professing Christians have, in which the author intends to address at this point. Why does the world look like it would if there was no God or king ruling over the universe? Why does it look like so much violence and disorder and chaos to the, to the common eye, so to speak? Why does the world laugh at us when we even broach the idea that Jesus is king and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him? Since Christ is supreme, why does the world look like it does? Because apart from what Scripture says to be true, could the average uh, non-believer conclude that there's a cosmos governed by King Jesus right now? Now, this is a big subject, and there's lots of nuances and variations of the question which have been coming throughout human history, but there's an important principle in all of this that we can't ignore as we think about the subject. And the principle has to do with why, in the first place, we think that the world isn't how it ought to be. As C.S. Lewis pointed out that everybody tends to believe that the world isn't as it should be. Everybody knows that things aren't how they ought to be. We recognize the world is broken, that things are damaged. We recognize there's sadness and pain and suffering, and though many people won't like to use this word, we recognize that there is sin. And endless numbers of people in philosophies want to point out the ways the world is damaged. They want to uh, uh, show out why, why, how it's hurting, how it's damaged, and they want to ask what we can do to repair it or to change it. and What are the underlying systemic issues which are causing the problems that we see? They'll say, what does it take to make things right? And simply put, they see that the world is broken and they want to know what to do about it. You know, an incredible amount of philosophical and religious thought is given to how the world is broken and what we can do to fix it. And nearly all of what we hear from government officials or politicians and candidates for office is what they intend to do to help fix the problem, to help fix the world. And we elect these people, we obey them, we vote for them based on whether we believe they're the party or they're the candidate who's going to fix things. And powerful and uh, influential ideologies like... Socialism and even democracy were created and they were developed with the goal of trying to fix what's broken and bring the world back to a fixed state. But C.S. Lewis's observation was that everybody sees the brokenness, but he asks, how does anybody know that it's actually broken? How can you say something is broken unless you know what it should be like when it's fixed or even before it was broken? And if I walked into my kitchen and I saw a broken water glass all over the floor, I would know the glass is broken because I know what an unbroken glass is like and where it should be. I know what it's supposed to be like, and I know that it's currently not what it's supposed to be like. So how can anybody call something crooked unless they know what it means for something to be straight? And how does everybody know that the world is broken? Well, that must mean that everybody knows that there is an unbroken there's a straight. And so the question comes, what is the unbroken and how did it get to be broken? If the water glass is now broken, and I know it shouldn't be broken, how did it become broken? If the world is broken, how did it get broken? If the world is full of sin, how did it get this way? It's really kind of a profound question that C.S. Lewis is asking. So you talk to the common man, they deny that there's a creator God ruling over everything, but they'll say the world isn't how it should be. Well, How do you know how the world should be? By what standard are you comparing it to? If there is no supernatural reality, if everything simply evolved in a closed system through physical processes and natural selection acting upon random mutation, then on what grounds can one say that the world is not how it ought to be? If there's no creator God and everything is just how it is through so-called chance and mathematical and physical processes, then in fact, the world is exactly how it should be. And we can at best only say that we prefer it to be different. But that's not what people are claiming, though. They're not saying that we just prefer things to be different. They're saying that things are not how they ought to be. They say injustice, oppression, and greed, and corruption, and murder are wrong, not just unpleasant And how can they say that? How can they make that claim? And that's C.S. Lewis's point. Everyone has an awareness, vague or distorted as it may be, that there is a moral absolute in the universe, that there's a supreme standard from which the world and all men fall short. Mankind knows the world is broken, and they have endless discussions and arguments and theories about how they can fix it, but almost nobody ever asks the really critical questions we almost never ask how we know it's broken, or why it's broken. Just like the water glass, I know it's broken because I know what it's supposed to be like. And yet, I also wonder, how did it break? You know, how did, what happened, or what event transpired that took an unbroken glass and made it into a, a broken glass? How did we go from unbroken world to broken world? That's the critical question. And the answer is, the world is broken, because it broke. I thought long and hard about that one. (laughs) Staying up late, thinking about it. I stayed up all night once to see where the sun came from, and then it dawned on me. (laughs) I was doing dad jokes before I was a dad. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things, and all of his creation was very good. God created a universe with time, with space, with matter, energy, physical laws, order, reason, and beauty. And he called the creation very good. Intellectual descendants from Plato, also the Gnostics and uh, misguided pietists, will claim that matter is evil and spirit is good, and the goal of humanity is to escape matter and exist in some kind of disembodied spirit realm. But This is contrary to what the Bible teaches. and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now the text in First Timothy says it's through the teachings of demons that insincere liars will tell us that God's creation is bad, and that by trying to escape the physical through abstaining from certain foods or marriage, it will grow into some kind of uh, higher spiritual enlightenment. You'll, you'll see this, you'll, you'll, if you notice this when you start talking to a lot of folks, you'll see this, oh, I don't do this, because they be have this, um, this idea that's, that's saying no to things, that this kind of asceticism is going to make them more, more holy and closer to the Spirit. But again, the text says that's the teachings of, of demons through insincere liars. It's false. God created all things and he called them very good. Now, Genesis says that God created the cosmos. God created it good, and God created men as physical beings with a soul to live in a good creation that he made. Genesis 1 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the uh, the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruits. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. What do we see here in this passage from Genesis? We see, at first, a creator. We see God as the one who begins life and creates man in his own image, with dignity and with purpose. We have a telos. We have a reason for our being, a reason for our existence. And we see in God the moral absolute in the universe, the supreme standard of good. God who as our creator has rightful authority over his creation, who gives his law and he gives his expectations to his creation. He creates man and he says, this is what I have made you for. This is what you're to do. Be a steward over my good creation. And in these verses, we see a world that's not broken. There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no suffering. It was created to be very good. And in this world, God creates the jewel of his creation, his his crowning achievement, so to speak, man, and he sets him up as the steward of creation, master of the earth with all creatures and plants, all flora and fauna in subjection to man. Man was made for a little while lower than the angels. God has crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to him. In these first pages of Genesis, man and the world are good. God is in right relationship with man, and man is in right relationship with nature, and in right relationship with one another, as there's no strife or alienation between man and woman at this time. Into this context, it wouldn't be hard to imagine Adam and Eve standing in the grassy field and looking up at the sky and saying, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? And those words were actually written by David in Psalm 8, which is the psalm that uh, our author in Hebrews quotes in our passage this morning. I worked with a guy for a long time who was a hardcore atheist, but one of those like Richard Dawkins kind of atheists, like not the guy that follows it to the intellectual conclusions just the emotional kind, but he said, you know, if, I, if there was a church that put that verse over the front door, I would go to it, because he, even though he rejected God, acknowledged the beauty of God's handiwork. But even now, even this far into the, the message, we can probably begin to see why the author of Hebrews quotes that psalm and how it relates to our question from the start of the message. Why does the world look like it does if King Jesus reigns supreme over it? Adam and Eve were living in the world as we wish it still was. They were living in a world where people, um, as people in their hearts want it to be, they yearn for this garden still. People everywhere know the world is broken, and it also seems that almost like written into every human heart is a grief over the loss of paradise that existed in the beginning. People everywhere in the world are striving to find the gates of Eden and to re-enter the serenity of the garden. So what happened? We've seen God creating an unbroken world that was very good. He placed man, as his crowning achievement, in mastery and stewardship of this world. And now we see that the world is broken and full of sin. But what happens, and why do we not see everything in subjection to man now? Well, if you spent any time in a Christian teaching, then you know the event. You know the story. You know Genesis 3. And you know how the uh, temptation came, and Adam and Eve fell, and they were expelled from the garden. And we know that from the moment they disobeyed God that the world hasn't been as it should. We remember the events, but I think often we can forget the effects or the impact. We just say, they were fine, they sinned, now it's broken. But we, we miss, really, um, go, kind of going back to the water glass analogy, we understand there was a glass, we understand somebody bumped it, we understand it's on the ground, What about the effects of of gravity? What about the intent to knock it down? What about the the mess that was made? What about the damage that might have been done? What about the person who might have cut their finger while they were reaching for the glass? What are the effects of this event? When we see Adam and Eve's fall, we see the subsequent brokenness of the world, but we tend to miss what actually happened when Adam and Eve sinned. When Adam fell, the human race fell with him. Adam was our representative. He was the federal head of mankind. And when he fell, sin entered the world and spread to all men, and with sin, death. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death spread to all men because all sinned. The Bible teaches that the reason people die is because of sin's penalty. All people have an inclination to sin, a guilt of sin, And so all people face sin's penalty, which is death. And while humanity retained the image of God, the image became tarnished, so to speak. And people now live with and experience the radical corruption of sin's effects. Moreover, in Genesis 3, when man fell, God cursed the earth and he subjected it to futility. Romans 8.20 says, For this creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you look around at the world, people say, why is the world so damaged? God cursed the world. The world is cursed because of sin. We so often forget that fact. We, we have all sorts of explanations of why things are so messed up in the world that we forget this is a world under judgment. This is a world that had sin enter into it and God cursed it. So let's summarize where we are so far. People know the world is broken and that it it's not what it should be. And the world is broken because it broke. The world and people were originally created good and unbroken. Humanity was placed on earth to worship God and steward the earth. Man rebelled against God, and as a result, sin and death entered the world and spread to all men. And now not only is man now enslaved to sin and death, but the creation itself is cursed and hostile to man's governance. Do we see the world as broken? We do. And we also see that mankind has never and can never redeem himself from the effects and the penalty of sin. Fallen man is enslaved to sin and death. This is something which, if we've been going, attending the, uh, the Romans lessons on Sunday morning, we should understand very well now. Man is enslaved and dead in his sin. And no philosophy, no ideology, and no other religion can free mankind from the brokenness that we see every day. And nor can it heal... Uh, the earth that we've ruined with our sin. All of these truths help us to understand what our passage from Hebrews is saying. God created man to be the glorious steward of the earth and chief worshiper and lover of God. God crowned humanity with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we don't see everything under his control. And this may still be a little bit confusing, but we understand it better now that we also understand the purpose for which mankind was created and how we have failed in that mission. We were created for this purpose, but we don't see everything in subjection to man. So that's the question. Why? And this does ultimately answer the question that we had at the beginning. If Jesus Christ is king over all and currently reigning over the universe, why doesn't it look like it? The answer Because the world is cursed and fallen, and before it can look like it should and be like it ought to be, it must be redeemed and remade, which is exactly what Jesus Christ has promised that he will do. Verse 5 of our passage says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The world to come. There's a world to come. This broken and sinful world isn't the last stop for us. God is going to fix this broken world. The passage in Romans 8 that we just looked at said the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Sin and death and pain and suffering and fear and futility will be no more. There will be no more loss or saying goodbye to loved ones. There will be no more hate. There will be no more lies or human pride or oppression there'll be no more killing, there'll be no more enslavement or abuse of the weak and vulnerable, because God is making all things new. Revelation 21, which is the last act of this drama of history, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will dwell with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor pain, nor crying anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There is a world to come, and it is not to angels that God has subjected it. It's to man, redeemed and restored, who will rule with Christ over this new creation. Revelation 2, the Lord Jesus says, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. Mankind will again walk with God in the cool of the day as we dwell with him for eternity. And we will be reconciled with God and ultimately fulfill the purpose for which we were created. This purpose, which we were made for, to be worshipers, to be stewards, which went off the rails so badly, will be restored by God. And therefore, as Christians, we see the brokenness of the world, and we don't say, why doesn't it look like Christ is king? But we instead say, Christ is king, and all of this brokenness has an expiration date, at which time, King Jesus will make all things new. And this is the significance of the passage before us this morning. Man was created to rule over the creation with God, but fell into sin and death. And in order to redeem humanity, God himself took on human flesh and entered into our pain and our suffering and our burden. Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, and where the first Adam fell into sin and temptation and brought down the entire human race, the second Adam resisted temptation and brought life to all who will turn from their sin and believe in Him savingly. Back to Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's sin, Adam's trespass, brought sin and condemnation and death into the world, but Jesus Christ brought grace and righteousness and eternal life for all who would believe in him. Two times in that passage from Romans, Paul calls Jesus Christ a man because Jesus Christ is truly human and truly God. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That Jesus Christ is truly human is significant for this morning's passage because the psalm that the author of Hebrews quoted was written about humanity, mankind. And whereas fallen and sinful humanity failed in their stewardship of the earth, Jesus Christ, as the perfect man, the second Adam, now ultimately fulfills this psalm. This psalm was written about humanity generally, and it's perfectly fulfilled by a human singularly, by the perfect representative of humanity, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. Ergo, the author continues, we no longer look around at the broken world and see a a world no longer under subjection to man, but, as he says in verse 9, we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We no longer look uh, at the broken world with hopelessness. We look at it with loving compassion and a great concern for the lost and the needy, as Christ himself did and as he does. True followers of Christ, faithful followers of Christ, are the most compassionate loving and caring people on the earth because of our union with Christ in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit we fix our eyes on Jesus who went to the cross in our place and he suffered the punishment for sin that we deserved and we repent of our sins then accept the free offer of grace that was only made possible because God himself stepped foot on this earth and died for us and we see him we see Jesus All of our vision on earth is now through Christ's lenses. We see a world that's waiting for the return of the king to remake it and take his people to their eternal home as described in the book of Revelation. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who stood between us and God's wrath so that we would be saved. Jesus Christ, who has been crowned with glory and honor because he is king, because he is on the throne, because he did rise from the dead and he was seen by over 500 people after his resurrection. He is crowned and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him and he is with us to the end of the age. He is coming back at a time fixed by the Father and he will gather all of his elect from the four corners of the earth. And these are the truths that the author of the Hebrews wants his readers to know as he wrote these words. Look to Jesus. Yes, the world is broken because man failed in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus Christ is the better Adam who did not fail. We see Jesus. We see his words and his works and his word. We see him as we live each day to love him, to worship him, and to obey him as his ambassadors before a watching world. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this passage, said, Ought this not to be the model of our life? We see Jesus. We should not regard the commands of Jesus Christ as being a law left to us by a departed master who we cannot see and to whom we cannot fly. Is it not better to believe that Christ is a living Christ, that he is in the midst of his church still, observing our order, noting our obedience or our disobedience, a master, absent in one sense, but still another point of view, ever-present, according to his promise. Behold, I am with you all the days until the end of the age. Should we be so frequently cold and careless if we could always see Jesus? Would our hearts be so hard toward perishing sinners if we always saw that the face which was bedewed with tears for them? Do, we, do you think we could be still, or grow worldly, or spend all our energies upon ourselves if we could see the crucified, who though he saved others, he did not save himself. I wish I could always preach Jesus, seeing him by my side and feeling in my heart what I was preaching in my Master's presence. As disciples, we would be more punctual in our obedience, more consistent in our imitation of Jesus if we had him always before us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this is our prayer. We want to see more of Jesus. We want to know Him better. We know in our hearts, Lord, enough about Christ, enough about ourselves to know that we don't love Him as we ought, that we don't live all for Him as we ought. And we will be in a sinful world until you bring us home. But I pray, God, that you would fill us with a great love for your Son, with a great knowledge of Him, with a passion to be ambassadors, Lord, as the world is watching us, and this world needs the Gospel. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you forgive us of our sins that we commit against you, and we know that through Christ we do have this forgiveness. I pray also that you would bless us in order that we would be blessings to others, and that this church in this community as we hold the baton of the gospel for our time here. We'd be faithful in loving our community and serving them and in sharing the gospel with them. We pray this in the name of King Jesus who entered into our broken world, who has promised to redeem it, who will redeem it. Amen.